Awaken our hearts. Father, I pray that you would just be with us now, Lord God, as we dive into your word. Father God, uh, may we always walk away changed. Uh, Father God, we have much to grow in, much to learn. Father God, but sin, (laughs) that evil enemy, Lord God, continues to plague us, continues to give us the fog, Lord God, so that we don't hear you, we don't listen. Many of us came in this morning, Lord God, we're burdened, Lord God, but I pray through the worship of song, Lord God, as we declare your faithfulness, Lord God, all of those things begin to slough off, Lord God, that we're done, put them to the side, that those chains would fall to the ground, that we would hear it in our soul. Father God, speak to us. Father God, teach us. I pray as we go into your word, Lord God, that my words would be removed, Lord God, and your words would remain, Father God, and through your spirit, Lord, you would change us. Help us to worship you now. It's in Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. Well, welcome, everyone. If you're here with us today, which you are because you're sitting right here, uh, this is week two of the study of Jonah. And if you missed week one, I really highly encourage you to go back and listen to Dave. Dave brought the word last week uh, as he really gave a good synopsis overview of what's happening in the book of Jonah uh, to give us a context. Uh, we saw once again that uh, obviously this is in the Old Testament and it's an overview book. Uh, it leads now uh, as we walk through the Old Testament to Israel's rebellion. And that's where we find ourselves uh, at the time of Jonah. We're now in a d- time of a divided kingdom. Uh, the prophets were sent as a warning to Israel, right? To do what? To repent, to turn back to the Lord. See, the Lord was very faithful, constantly sending his prophets to them to turn back, turn back as he was gracious to them. But interestingly, Jonah's message was not to the people of Israel, but to the people of Nineveh, pagans and the sworn enemies of Israel. The deeper undertone of the book of Jonah is the revelation of the heart of God for all people, not just one particular group. See, the beautiful message would become clear later through the prophet Isaiah, who was speaking uh, after Jonah. In Isaiah 49, he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Yet even this is a fulfillment from a much earlier time when God promised to Abraham that he would bless him and that his his progeny would fill the earth. Abraham, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And this promise was completely fulfilled through our glorious Messiah, Jesus Christ. Completely and finally. The bottom line is we should see the continued work of our Lord to restore his children to himself, even when they were enemies. See, the book of Jonah amplifies this message of restoration, which is why it is so important for us to understand it today. And the main idea of the text this morning is that God sovereignly works through his people to bring salvation that results in worship. So our outline, the book of Jonah is, guys, just such an interesting book, one that we have to take a step back in and take a deep dive. Uh, One that honestly, uh, the Lord really worked on my heart this week because I've taken so many uh, cursory readings through this initial part. Why? Because we're all getting to what part? Jaden. Jaden, turn around. Yeah, listen. What part of Jonah do you remember? Are you do you remember about? What's the part you remember? The big 
The big fish, there we go. All right, he's quiet today, sorry. I'll put you on the spot, buddy, I love you. The big fish, sorry, that's next week. You have to wait for that one. But there's so much in this text this morning that we miss if we just take a gloss reading over it. So the writer is being very intentional in pointing us to something unique that can be overlooked when we try to skim read. So his word is full of manifold wisdom. We see that. And what we see in this particular section, which actually goes back into when Dave was preaching last week, back up to verse four, we see what's called a chiasm, a chiastic structure. And imagine this, it's just a a fancy word, right? In literary terms, that basically you're looking at a mirror. Imagine yourself, when you look in a mirror, you see a reflection of the exact opposite, right? So in the text this morning, that's what we see. And here's how it's laid out. Beginning in verse four, we see that Yahweh hurls a wind on the sea and the storm begins. And what did the sailors do? They fear and cry out to their gods, verses four through five. Next, we see that Jonah is sleeping and everyone is crying out to their gods and they tell him to cry out to your God so that we shall not perish. And then we see God's divine sovereignty, verses five through six. Verses seven, we see that on whose account this is done. That's what the the sailors are questioning. Then they question Jonah directly. Verse eight, the sailors question him. Verses nine, Jonah's declaration, I fear the Lord. And then the mirror image happens right there in verse 10. What happens? The sailors fear. And then the sailors question Jonah. What have you done? Verse 11, verse 12. I know that this is on my account. Jonah's confession. Verse 13 through 14, the sailors strive for land and the sailors cry to who? To Yahweh. Let us not perish. We see again God's divine sovereignty. And then finally that culminates in the sailors hurl Jonah into the sea. The storm ceases and the sailors fear Yahweh and his sacrifice. So the idea in this entire text is pointing us in the direction of worship. So we end, right, we begin with the end in mind and that is worship. John Piper has said it so well and let the nations be glad, a great book to read. It says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship does not. And that's the primary point. Therefore, the goal of the church is no different than Jonah's assignment to give the clarion call of our Lord so that men and women can come to faith in Christ. See, this passage lays out just what lengths the Lord is willing to go to in order to receive worship that is due to him. So beginning in our text this morning in verses 7 through 10, we will see that God will expose our sin and bring us to repentance. God will expose our sin and bring us to repentance. Right there in verses 7, let's begin right there. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. God will expose our sin. See, Jonah's rebellion was exposed even though he went as far as he possibly could to get away from the Lord. And it's really interesting that the verbiage of, of what the author is putting down, we see in this section that he's painting this picture of Jonah going down. And what do you think that represents, Jonah going down? It represents being away from the Lord. What is Christ said to be doing when he's going to Jerusalem, right? To sacrifice himself. He's going what? 
up. He's going up, signifying getting into the presence of the Lord, going closer. Why? Because the sacrificial system was based around Jerusalem, the place of worship. So you went up to the place of worship. So going down is going further and further away from the presence of the Lord. It's such a beautiful picture. So Jonah went down to Joppa. He goes down into the ship, and then he goes down into the inner parts of the ship. Uh, verse 5, but he still couldn't escape the Lord. Have you ever tried to flee like that? Tried to bury your sins as deep down as you could, hoping that God wouldn't see it. And I was reflecting, I was kind of thinking over some examples, you know. I told the first service, Jaden, that I could use you boys all the time. But uh, I'm going to use one from Daddy's life, right? When Daddy was about eight or nine, uh, I... Um, <clears throat> Mom had bought this leather uh, chair and ottoman together that she just loved. And I mean, it was really nice, you know, a little black leather, looked nice and elegant. And uh, at this point in time, we were living in Buckhead in Atlanta in one of the, the, the Concord, a big high rise where we'd see a bunch of NBA, NBA stars. It was really cool. You know, I was about this tall. They were about that tall. It was awesome to a little kid. Um, but I had a friend that was on one of the other levels uh, in the high rise and we were, we were, happened to be in my mom's apartment. We're playing and we're playing hard. We're running around, we're jumping around. We played Sega for like eight hours. No, you can't get a game system. Um, and we got the bright idea on this leather couch because what, what do you do with something that's nice and slippery like leather? You got to slide. And so we get to sliding. And we're sliding and we're sliding and we're jumping and we're being crazy like I tell you not to be. Um, see, I can't get him to go home and then it'll be a bad day. Um, <clears throat> so we're sliding, we're sliding, and then all of a sudden I hit it. And of course, all my weight hits it just right. And that leather goes, just rips right over the top and folds right over. My mom's brand new leather ottoman. I was terrified. So what did I do? Well, I was such a good boy that I went directly to my mother and I confess that I tore her leather. No, not at all. I neatly placed that thing right down over the top, made sure that the leather lined just right so that you couldn't see that tear that was up underneath. And then we went back to the game room and went playing until my mother, you know, yelled out from the living room, what did you do? And I was like, oh, just broke down. And in my little eight, nine-year-old self, I confessed what I did and just started boo-hoo. And I remember going back in my room. I had a piggy bank full of, you know, coins and dollars. Who even knows how much? And I was like, here, mommy, you know, take all this. I uh, probably wouldn't have done anything. But I was found out. Couldn't hide it no matter what I wanted to do. And such is the Lord with us. See, this is as fruitless as Jonah booking a fair and trying to run away from the Lord. For the scripture is clear. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Nothing is hidden from him. God knows and God sees us for who we are. He searches, he knows our thoughts from afar. Psalm 139 that Dave brought to us last week. So the obvious first response this morning is stop running and hiding from the Lord. But what happens when we remain stubborn? What, where can it bring us? This is what makes Jonah such an interesting person. See, because he acts completely out of step with his calling as a prophet. His rebellion, uh, in his rebellion, he became so callous that he was sleeping in the lowest part of the ship while the sailors were genuinely, genuinely crying out to their false gods. His rebellion had brought him to the ultimate low point in his life. And I have to take a side note here and just reflect for a moment. It's a good time to, to, for you to reflect on, guess what? 
someone can actually have genuine faith in something that is false. And we need to take note of that. See, this is carrying over from last week when we're dealing with the sailors crying out to their gods. See, they genuinely cried out in belief to their false gods until. Until when? Until they encountered the one true and living God. See, for us today, it's like the idea of relative beliefs and truth claims where people can say, you have your faith and I have my faith and we'll all just get along and it'll be, both, it'll, it'll be right. And this may sound good on a tweet or a Facebook post, but we know quite clearly this is blatantly false. False on its face. It can't be true. The sailors placed their hope and trust in false gods, but we dare not question their allegiance, right? Even though it was misplaced, they are a stark contrast to Jonah, right? Who should have known better, who should have known who to actually worship and who to cry out to in this moment of rebellion. But the book isn't pointing out who has the better faith, is it? No, that's not the point. The scripture is pointing to the reality of the God who was, who is, and who is to come. There is only one God, and he is sovereign. True faith, then, is based on the object of one's faith, not their sincerity. See, the story continues with the lots being cast to see who caused the storm. And we see this in Proverbs. We know that God is sovereign over all of this. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. See, once again, showcasing the sovereignty of God. So the Lord controls the lot, causing it to fall on Jonah, and he's exposed. He can't hide anymore. Isn't it interesting and telling of how deep our sinful uh, actions actually affect others? Jonah has no idea, or maybe he does, and he just doesn't care, right, how much he's affecting. Jonah puts numerous lives at risk for the consequences of his own sins. The sad reality for us today is that sometimes problems come to the world because of our actions, the actions of Christians. Sin has consequences and they, and they do not only affect us. And Jonah's response is so telling. The sailors ask him about his occupation, his country, and his people. He would not even admit that he was a prophet. Not at all. Probably because he was ashamed or he was just remaining stubborn. He did confess where he was from and that he knew and feared the God who was the creator of everything. And he finally admitted that he was fleeing from God. The other irony is that despite Jonah running from the Lord, choosing to put himself in a precarious position of not witnessing the pagans, guess what he does? He witnesses the pagans. He can't help it. One commentator even notes that it is quite possible that there were men from Nineveh on the boat. And Jonah testifies to the one true and living God. He can't help it. This is a reminder for us that God is going to accomplish his will even if it's through our rebellion, as we disobey him. Don't do that, by the way. Don't test the Lord. That's not, that's not the point. One final point we must see is the effect of Jonah's testimony upon the sailors. Once they learned that the storm was coming from the Hebrew God, and this is important because it ultimately actually lends itself to understanding the sailors' repentance later and what that looks like. Right? The text states that they became what? Exceedingly afraid. You can underline that one. Exceedingly afraid because it's going to happen again later on in the text exceedingly afraid. But why? Why were they exceedingly afraid? They had this storm. Why are they now afraid of something else? Because no doubt the Lord's testimony had preceded him. These sailors traveled up and down the Mediterranean from port to port to port to port and running around and here. Do you not think for one moment that they heard of the God who brought plague upon plague upon plague upon plague on Egypt? 
Do not think for a moment that they had heard tell stories of the Red Sea parting and an entire myriad of people walking through on dry land. Do not think that they had heard of the, the constant wandering for 40 years of a multitude of people in the desert that where they didn't plant any grain, but yet God was their provider. Oh yeah, they heard news. And now they were encountering this God firsthand. So they're afraid, as they should be. But as we'll see in a moment, perhaps this reality is what the Lord uses to actually bring them to true repentance. So number two, we see that God desires true repentance that will draw us to a genuine faith. We see that in verses 11 through 16. Read with me again. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back onto dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for the, this man's life and lay not on, on us his innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So we see again that God desires true repentance that draws us to genuine worship. But what we see in the first section is also what true repentance is not. It helps us define things. True repentance is not begrudging submission. Think about this. The text is remarkable in how far Jonah had retreated from the Lord. Remember that. Uh, we have no evidence at this point that Jonah listened to the, the captain to pray to his God, even though Jonah knew this merciful God. The irony is so palpable because in a moment, Jonah could have cried out to this God for mercy. See, there's no denying that he understood God's mercy because of how he prays to the Lord later in the book of the people of Nineveh. And then they repent, right? And what happens? This is, what is, this is his own declaration in prayer. I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He also tells the Lord this before he left uh, from Israel. So amid the storm, he could have cried out to the Lord, but he's stubborn, stubborn as a mule and refuses to relent, refuses to turn back to the Lord when he knows that God is merciful. Perhaps he just doesn't care. That kind of is what, what it seems like from the text. It's nonchalant. He's just, he'd just rather die. He'd rather commit suicide than actually repent before the Lord. They're in a boat for crying out loud. They can turn around. Do you don't think the God of mercy, if they would have turned around going in the correct direction, would have just stopped the storm then? Absolutely. Yet, Jonah stays stubborn, right? He does not show that he desires to plead for the Lord for forgiveness. He simply gives instruction to the sailors. He fails to see that even, uh, he, he fails to even have compassion for them because they're dying on his, on, his, on his behalf. Instead, he would rather kill himself than to turn around and head back to Nineveh. But before we chide Jonah, in this moment, for his lack of compassion, stubbornness, his extreme prejudice towards Nineveh and the pagans uh, on the ship, church, we have to look at ourselves. I know I have to chide myself. I know that conviction falls on me here. 
See, in a sickening reality, the reason why we most likely are so frustrated with Jonah is because we see ourselves. See, the reality is that we stand at a moment in time where there are still 7,387 people groups that are classified as unreached. And this translates into about approximately 3.29 billion people, nearly half of the total population in the world who are going to live their lives and die having never heard about Jesus. So let me bring this reality closer to home for a moment. According to one study that I found, 65 million people die each year in this world. That's 178,000 each day, 7,425 each hour, and 120 each minute. That means by the time we reach the end of our service today, 3,119 people will have died never having heard the chance to follow Christ, never having that chance, never having heard the gospel. That's roughly equivalent to the half of the population of Beaufort County dying each day worldwide apart from Christ. Are you okay with that? Are you broken by that reality? Think about the people you know, your coworkers, your neighbors, restaurant workers, retail workers, and on and on. They sit each day in the tempest of this life crying out to the God of their own choosing and we sit sleeping in the bottom of the boat when we are the ones that have the good news to tell them. We're the one that can deliver this. Romans tells us through Paul, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him with whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How will they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Like Jonah, we too must truly repent for our complacency and lack of compassion for the lost. We need to take the next obedient step to reach those whom God has placed around us. But true repentance is also not taking things into our own hands. We've got stubbornness, but it's also taken into our own hands. So let's analyze Jonah's actions for a moment. One commentator says it this way, The unnatural ferocity of the storm and the casting of the lot only confirmed that Jonah al- what Jonah already knew. Right? He's hiding. He knows this. He knows the storm's about him. So now he is resigning himself to his fate. He did not exhibit repentance for fleeing from the Lord, but merely resigned himself to the only seeming solution. In verse 6, the captain had already asked Jonah to pray. Jonah did not seem so inclined, but gave the sailors instruction on what to do so that they may possibly be saved from the ferocious tempest. And it is interesting that Jonah did not offer to jump overboard on his own. Perhaps he too was frightened. Or perhaps he was just to the point of merely asking for them to be an instrument of God's punishment on his behalf. His motives are all wrong. He's doing it all on his own. So from both Jonah and the men on the ship, there's a reluctance to completely surrender to the Lord. See, instead, Jonah resolves to end his life much in the same way that he speaks in chapter 4, after Nineveh repents. And the sailors, for their own part, are working in ignorance while trying to save a life, go back to doing what they do best, right? Row the ship. Row the ship. Going back to what I know. Got to do what I know. This is what I know when a storm comes. Yet we know that as hard as it is, resigning ourselves to our fate in morbid fashion or trying to work hard to earn that which can only be given is not true repentance. It's not true repentance from the sin raging in our lives. Full obedience is necessary to reach true repentance. This picture is rich because the Lord continues to act graciously towards the sailors and to Jonah to draw them out from their false beliefs. So if these are what true repentance is not, what is it? True repentance is holy fear 
and submission that leads to a genuine worship, verses 14 through 16 that Ron Ron read earlier. The sailors eventually submit, and they no longer are praying to their false gods, are they? Nope, not at all. They turn and plead to Jonah's God, who is the creator of everyone and everything. And unlike Jonah, at this point, they have reached the end of themselves and are willing to do whatever it is to be saved. And the beautiful part of the Christian where our hearts should be turning at this moment is the reality that this is where we found Christ, right? At the end of ourselves. When there was nothing left, when there's nowhere else to go, nowhere else to turn. We relented of all the things to follow him, to trust in his saving power. This is what Jesus told his disciples. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow after me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, in this heart-wrenching moment, these sailors find themselves reaching out and receiving grace from the only one who could give it. Once they follow, follow through in obedience, the sea ceases to rage. And there is a great calm. The sailors' response is perfect because they move from fearing the storm to fearing the Lord, the text says, exceedingly. See, it's, proper, it's a proper fear. As Christ would tell his disciples, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. See, this is good and right. So they move to give evidence of their change of belief because they are offering sacrifices and made vows. And some commentators, right, believe that the sailors were not truly repentant because there's just not enough evidence. But man, the optimist in me has, has to have hope. The same reverential fear, the word for fear, is used in the Proverbs when the writer says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So they're using a right fear, an awe-inspired fear. They were saved from the storm, but they also realized they had been saved from so much more, right? That's why their actions testify to a changed heart. Psalm 76 says, make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, So I'm hopeful that the sailors found the God once and for all. But I can't leave this text this morning without pointing out one more beautiful reality. See, when dealing with scriptures, uh, many theologians uh, have stated that as you read the entire scriptures, you see uh, a scarlet thread that is weaved in and out through all the scriptures that lead to Christ, that point to him directly. Sometimes it's easily visible. Sometimes you can pick it out in a dime. Other times, it's a little bit more difficult to see, but it's still there. It all points to Christ. But as I've read this message uh, or this passage and just really reflected, I don't believe this thread is hidden at all, but it's boldly flapping in the tempest that we've read about because I can't help but think of another storm where sailors were caught in a tempest only to encounter the living God who saves once and for all. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn over to Mark 4. Jesus, after delivering many parables and teaching and healing, he's tired. He gets in the boat. says, on that day, beginning in verse 35 of chapter 4, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Matthew tells us that it was being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? 
And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Man, you should just be relishing in this. The disciples see the living God in the boat. All they can do is you have this exceeding great fear. Are they fearing the storm? No. Like the sailors with Jonah, they're not fearing the storm anymore. They're fearing the God above the storm. The disciples with Jesus in the boat are like, who is this man in the boat? They have exceeding fear. They're reflecting. They're moving back away from him. And what are they doing? They're worshiping. See, bottom line, God knows his children. But it is also true that when we encounter the one true and living God, we will forever be changed. We will walk away changed. And the only natural response is worship. So the picture given to us this morning, this passage in its entirety, honestly is the analogous to the walk of the Christian. Right? We start out dead in our trespasses and sins. We're trying to do things on our own, trying to work at those things. Life sends the storm and is breaking us apart. But what do we do? In repentance and submission to God, he gives us grace and draws us into relationship to himself. And then what do we experience? We experience true worship. So what do we do? We, have, we give evidence to a changed life and we seek him out where he can be found. We display authentic worship. So how are we to apply this with us today? I have three questions that you'll go over in your community groups, um, but I think they'll be fruitful. Number one, what sins are you hiding that God is calling you to bring out into the light? See, so ask the Lord to search you so that these sins may be exposed. Jonah hid from the Lord because he could not find repentance. You're not to be that way. We have the example of Jonah for us to show that the Lord is more than willing to chase you where you're at. So don't be stubborn. Don't let your sins hold you back from experiencing the true freedom that is found in Christ. Otherwise, the Lord will teach you through discipline. In Hebrews 12, 5 through 6 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when he when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. But remember, the Lord is going to what the Lord is going to produce in us. It doesn't end in discipline, does it? The writer of Hebrews continues, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So as I tell my boys, learn the lessons of the discipline so that you don't have to struggle in the same way over and over again. See, battling our sins, Christian, is a sign that we are actually learning to follow after the Lord more faithfully. Question number two, who are you not faithfully praying for because of some prejudice? See, Jonah was not callous to the people of Nineveh and the pagans. Uh, he He was so callous to the people of Nineveh and the pagans he was surrounded by. He couldn't see it. See, he could not see them as lost souls in need of savior, of saving. He became blind by the hatred and poor treatment of his own people that he could not see his, em, his enemies as image bearers. And this is an easy trap for us to fall into. The roots of bitterness and anger will consume us from the inside. But Paul to the Ephesians says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. 
perfect justice is wrapped up in the Lord, so we must trust him and grow in our long suffering. But who are we to say that our ability to forgive and show love to those who are our enemies is not the way that the Lord's going to bring them to repentance? Question three, how might the Lord be calling you to greater faithfulness? What bold initiative is the Lord leading you to? It was no small task to call Jonah to go to his sworn enemies and preach the message of repentance. It wasn't. It was quite outlandish. The reality is Jonah could have very well lost his life because of his commitment to go and to share the good news. But he doesn't. See, the cost to follow the Lord in obedience is great, but the reward is greater. We now stand in a right relationship with our Lord. We are at peace with our Heavenly Father. We are no longer cast out, but have been brought near to our God, who will one day actually see face to face. We've been given the beautiful news of the rescue plan, and we cannot keep this message to ourselves. It has to go out. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you would just be with us now. Lord, we've moved into your word this morning, and we've seen Jonah's rebellion, and we've seen the sailors move from their false beliefs to true belief and repentance, Lord God. And in the midst of that, we see ourselves. We see from stubbornness to works-based righteousness, Lord God, we see that we fall short all the time. Father, and we're broken. Lord, I ask that you would just break our hearts right now. That with our eyes closed, Lord God, our hearts are turned to you. That we're recognizing, Lord God, where we fall short. Lord, help us to turn to you, Lord God. Many of us came in with so many burdens this morning, Lord God. So many distractions, Lord God, to, to really push us away from you, Lord God. Some of it's hurt and pain uh, from a church setting. Some of us were bringing in our own sin. We brought in anger, bitterness. We brought in gossip. We brought in gluttony. We brought in lust. Father God, we brought in anger. Father God, help us to lay those down at your feet to pursue true repentance with you, Lord God, so that you can fill us up, so that we can be obedient, so we can go where you've called us, Lord God, so we can reach that 7,000 lost people groups, so it can be used by you to do that which only you can do. Father God, so help us, help us now. Father, we love you. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, we're going to enter into a time of reflection over the message of whatever it is the Lord's training your heart because we're preparing our hearts for the Lord's table. And we celebrate this each week knowing that the Lord has paid it all. He's paid all of our sins, past, present, future. He has wiped the slate clean. And we're called to remember that each and every week. But we don't walk into this lightly. We don't just sugarcoat it, Lord. We don't just come to the table and just think nothing of the cost that it bore for just our sins, Lord God. And yet you have took on all the sins. Father God, only you can do that. So work in our hearts, Lord God, as we follow after you and trust you. It's in Jesus' name, amen.